Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, where we are engaged in a sermon series these days called Press On by Faith. And we're going to continue this series by looking today at Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to cover the whole chapter, so it's kind of long, but uh, I will talk fast and hopefully you will hold on and uh, follow me along as we go through Hebrews chapter 3. Listen as I read the chapter, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence And our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways." As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word today and pray that you, Holy Spirit, will come And wake us up. If any of us are sleepy in our hearts and in our minds, we pray that you'll wake us up to the very important words that we've just heard. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last fall, you remember that we looked at the life of David, right? We went through the life of David and looked at a number of different episodes in his life. That series began way back in July... In 1 Samuel 16, you don't need to turn to that, but do you remember when Samuel the prophet went to the home of Jesse 
and he wanted to anoint the next king of Israel. And he started with the oldest. I think his name was Eliab. And he said, surely this is the one that God wants to anoint as king. God said, no, that's not the right one. And what God said was that man always looks at the outward appearance, but that the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel ended up anointing David, the youngest of the children of Jesse. Not because he was the biggest and the oldest, but because of his heart. He was a man after God's heart. When the Bible speaks in the term heart, it's not talking about this organ that we have in our bodies. It's talking about our core, our spiritual core, the center of our mind, our will, our emotions. The most important part of us, according to the Bible, is the heart. You might say the heart is where it starts. Could you say that with me? The heart is where it starts. That's something you might want to try to remember this week. In the book of Proverbs, it says that the heart is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23, the wellspring of life. In other words, it starts in the heart. Everything that we are on the outside really is a reflection of what's on the inside. But so often, we're like Samuel. We look at the outside of things instead of thinking about the heart. Many times we are like people who, let's say a person goes to a car lot, a used car lot, and wants to buy a new car. And he looks at this shiny, outwardly looking great car and says, I want that car. It's beautiful. It looks fast. You know, it looks well painted. Everything about it I love. And then the salesman says, oh, but there's one problem with that car. There's no motor in it. See, that's like we are sometimes in dealing with our own selves as well as with other people. We focus on what's outside when, the, according to the Bible, it's the heart that's the most important thing, like the motor to a car. It's what's in the heart that shapes everything else. The heart is where it starts. Well, in our text this morning, there are multiple references to the heart. And you might want to take a pen out and underline these. In verse 8, it says, do not harden your hearts. In verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. In verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 15, do not harden your hearts. I guess we can't speak these days of a broken record. Nobody knows what records are anymore, right? But this is, this is like a broken record. Heart, heart, heart. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying in this chapter, don't allow the core of your being, the center of your thoughts and feelings and choices, to get hard and cold toward God. Instead, according to verse 14, we are to hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or, to put it another way, press on by faith. That's the title of this sermon series. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, and as Charlie reminded you last week, the letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians 
who were suffering persecution. They were being tempted by the suffering that they were going through to go back to their religion of the past, to a lifeless religion, a religion of works instead of faith in Christ, a religion of ceremonies and animal sacrifices and temple worship. All of those encumbrances of the Jewish faith instead of focusing on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that these people were infatuated with angels. You remember that? They were kind of getting off on angels instead of Jesus. And we saw that the writer of Hebrews says, don't drift away from Jesus. Well, here in chapter 3, the first part of the chapter, we're told that the people also... These people who originally got this letter were also sort of infatuated with Moses. Did you notice a couple of references to Moses where Jesus is being compared to Moses and the writer is saying Jesus is superior to Moses? So they're getting infatuated with angels in chapter 1 and with Moses in chapter 3. And the writer of this letter is telling them here in this chapter, again, don't drift away from Jesus. Only he doesn't use those words, don't drift away from Jesus. He uses these words, don't harden your hearts. They mean the same thing. So I want to talk today about four things. Let me give you the outline and then we'll dive in. The possibility of a hard heart. The signs of a hard heart. The result of a hard heart. And finally, the path to a Soft heart. All right, so there's where we're going. Let's dive in. First of all, the possibility of a hard heart. <clears throat> the other day, sorry, I've got kind of a catch in my throat for some reason. The other day, I was going to do some painting. And in my garage are a lot of paint cans. So I pulled out the one that I thought I needed, opened it up, and looked inside, and lo and behold, the paint was hard as a rock. Hard, just like those stones that Charlie was showing the children. In the same way, our hearts, we can look fine on the outside, right? We can go to church, we can do good things. When on the inside, it's possible for the heart of a Christian even to grow hard and cold. It's possible for people who are outwardly religious, people who go to church, people who read their Bibles, people who know all there is to know theologically, people who do good, do good things for other people, to nevertheless have a hard heart toward God. How do I know that? I know that because of what it says in verses 7 through 11. Look with me again at that part of our text, 7 Therefore, the writer says, as the Holy Spirit says, do not, or rather, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Friends, these verses, verses 7 through 11, are a quotation from Psalm 95. You might want to jot that down in your margin there or something. Psalm 95. 
All of those verses from 7 through 11 are taken from Psalm 95. And maybe later on today or this week, go back and read Psalm 95 because it talks about two different tragic episodes in the life of the Old Testament people of Israel. Let me summarize what those two were, okay? One of those two tragic episodes was when in Exodus 17, the people of Israel were marching up from Egypt into, through the wilderness into the promised land. And they came to a place called Rephidim, Rephidim, where they were incredibly tired and thirsty. And they began to grumble against Moses and against God. Now keep in mind, this was just a few days after manna from heaven had been raining down on the people for them to eat. (laughs) A few days later, they get grumbly and complainy about being thirsty. So they complained to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die of thirst? Well, God told Moses to go over this big rock and to strike it with his rod and water would come out for the people to drink. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, Moses called the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Because the people of Israel tested and grumbled and complained about being thirsty to God. That was the one episode in Psalm 95. The second episode that uh, the writer to Hebrews is alluding to was when in Numbers 13 and 14, the people of Israel still marching up through the wilderness from Egypt toward the promised land, arrived at a place called Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And God told Moses to send some spies up into Canaan, which was the promised land, to do some reconnaissance, to spy out the land and find out what it was like and bring back a report so that the people would be better prepared for the conquest of the promised land. Well, so Moses did that. He sent 12 spies up into Canaan, one spy for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they spent 40 days up there looking at everything, doing reconnaissance, figuring it out what it was like. And they came back, and the first words out of their mouth were, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a pleasant land. So you might think that's a positive report. But then the spies said, but, (laughs) but we can't go up there. The people who live up there are too strong and too powerful for us. The spies were especially afraid of this group of people called the Nephilim, who were giants, big, tall, you know, big, strapping, bodybuilder type guys. And only two of the spies, two of the 12, Caleb and Joshua, disagreed with that. They said, no, We could succeed with God's help. If we trust the Lord and go up, we'll do okay, and it will be a wonderful place for us to move up to. But the other spies spread a bad report about the land and discouraged the people. And so the whole community grumbled again and wept before God and said, We want to go back to Egypt. We're going to all die if we try to go up into Canaan. And so uh, God threatened to wipe them out at that very moment. When Moses, though, interceded and prayed for the people, prayed that God would would forgive them, God did, 
But God said to the people, none of the people who saw the signs I performed in Egypt, but disobeyed me and tested me, not one of them will ever see the promised land. And so you know the rest of the story. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days that the spies went up and spied out the land. And every single adult except Joshua and Caleb died before reaching the land of Canaan. Those two stories, you see, are the basis for the author's warning to these first century Jewish Christians. He's saying, don't repeat the sins of the, fa- of the past. Don't do what your forefathers did. In other words, don't harden your hearts. Now this ought to make you and me shudder. This ought to make us stop in our tracks and do some really hard thinking. These people who didn't make it to the promised land were in the community of faith. Verse 16 says, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? They had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They had been fed with manna out of heaven, like I said a little while ago. They drank that water out of the rock. They had heard the voice of God from Mount Sinai speaking to them. But when trouble came, what'd they do? They turned away. Yeah, they grumbled. They turned away from the Lord. Their behavior and their attitude in a time of testing revealed the condition of their, what? Hearts. That they were hard and cold toward God. Verse 17 says that God was very angry with them for 40 years and their bodies fell in the desert. So friends, is it possible? Is it possible that there are people sitting in churches today who will not be in heaven someday? Absolutely, yes, it is. In fact, it's certain. Is it possible that a few people who attend this church are in fact not born again and will not be in heaven. Now that's a heavy thing to say, isn't it? Is it? But you've got to admit, it's possible. Because just like my paint can, it's possible for everything to look okay on the outside. But for the heart to not be warm and soft toward the Lord. It's possible to have the outward show, to make an outward profession, yet have no inward grace. So it's possible to have a hard heart. That ought to ask or begs the question, how do you know? (laughs) How does one know if he or she has a hard heart? Well, there are signs. There are three that are alluded to here in this text. Let me mention three signs of a hard heart. The first one is a resentful, bitter spirit when things don't go your way. A resentful, bitter spirit when things don't go your way. Look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of what testing. Testing in the wilderness. 
See, go back in your mind, <clears throat> go back in your mind to what I said earlier. When the Israelites were thirsty, what did they do? When they weren't getting their way, when they were having to uh, deny themselves physically, what did they do? They grumbled, they complained against God. They raised their fists up at God and virtually said, you can't do this to us. See, some people have kind of an ATM machine view of God. You know what an ATM is. You stick your debit card in the slot, punch a few buttons, and out come blessings. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully you're not overdrawn. But so many people view God that way. Say a couple of prayers. Attend a few worship services. Do a few good things. Give a few dollars. And outpour blessings. And then when the blessings don't come, when there's a time of testing or suffering or sickness or death or pain or some other kind of temptation, so many people who have been doing those good things <clears throat> raise their fists at God and say, I didn't sign on to this. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. A resentful, bitter spirit when things don't go your way. Second sign of a hard heart is blame shifting. Back in Numbers 14, when the Israelites heard about all those powerful people who lived in Canaan, you know, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Stalagmites, the Stalactites, all those other ites. <laughs> when they heard about that, they said, we can't attack those people. We can't go up there. They're stronger than we are. And think about those giants. We're like, they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. <clears throat> and the people started to choose another leader beside Moses who would take them back to where they'd come from. But the problem for them wasn't the ites. The problem wasn't the Nephilim, those giants. It was the people's own attitude to God. They just didn't want to do what God told them to do. But they found a convenient group of people to pin the blame on for their shortcomings. The Nephilim, the Hittites, the Amorites, and those other ites. So we've got to ask ourselves, who do we blame for our problems? Who do you blame? Who do you pin the blame on? Husbands, do you, like Adam in the Garden of Eden... Say to God, the woman you put here with me, it's her fault. Or wives, do you do what Eve did in the Garden of Eden and say, the devil made me do it? Or maybe it's the fault of your family of origin. Maybe if your parents had done a better job, you wouldn't be making such bad choices today. Or maybe it's the fault of your boss or your co-workers, or your teacher that you are in the place you're in. What is that? That's blame-shifting. <clears throat> it's blame-shifting. It's, it's putting the spotlight on something beside your own heart. A third sign. <clears throat> a third sign of a hard heart. Unbelief. Unbelief. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> the very last verse of the text says, So we see that they were unable to enter, that is, the promised land, because of their unbelief. 
What is unbelief? It's the refusal to trust God's promises. God had promised many times over that He would protect His people and bring them up safely from the promised land. He had promised to provide for them over and over again. But the Israelites rejected God's word. They did not trust that God would take care of them as He had promised. According to verse 12, they had an evil, unbelieving heart leading them to fall away from the living God. Now let me make an important distinction between unbelief and doubt. Anybody in the room ever doubt? Yeah, I sure have. I I doubt many times. Uh, But unbelief and doubt are two different things. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. You see the difference? Doubt says, I can't trust. Well, even the man who Jesus ran into said one time, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, he's saying, I can't believe. That's what doubt is. But unbelief says, I won't believe. No, I'm going to figure it out all by myself. God, I don't trust you. I won't trust you. Doubt is okay. We all struggle to believe the promises of God. But unbelief is sinful. Unbelief is making a deliberate decision to live as though what God has said is irrelevant to you. So again, I ask you, how do you tend to react when life throws you a curve? Do you forget all that God has done for you in the past? Do you forget His promises? Do you crumble into despondency? Or, on the other hand, do you freak out and panic and fly into a frenzy of activity? That's how some people deal with uh, their problems. But either way, you're not believing in God, right? You're you're, You're acting as though there's no God in heaven, that He is unaware of your problems, unaware of your challenges, cannot help you, and will not help you. That's a sign of a hard heart. Now, let's, let's hit a pause button for a moment. Um, why is the author of Hebrews telling us these things? And you might be sitting there today thinking, why is Mike talking like this? This is no fun at all. <laughs> He's supposed to be telling us how much God loves us. He's ta- supposed to be talking about grace. Well, we talk a lot about grace here. And I will always talk about grace But listen, you who are parents, did you ever warn your kids not to do something? Did you always just go around telling them, I love you, I love you, I love you? No. Sometimes you had to tell them not to do things. Sometimes you had to tell them that what they had done was wrong. You don't pay a doctor to tell you that everything's fine. No, you pay him to examine you and find out what might be wrong inside your body. Because you want to be what? healthy. You want to experience life the way it's meant to be. And so the warnings of Scripture, like in this chapter, Hebrews 3, are God's way of showing us what might be wrong inside so that we're spiritually strong and healthy and experience life the way it's meant to be. So let's go on. We've looked so far at the possibility of a hard heart and the signs of a hard heart. Let's talk about the result of a hard heart. 
the result of a hard heart, if something is not going to change it, if something doesn't happen to interrupt the trajectory, the result is judgment. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 of the chapter says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now we're going to talk more about rest next week. So come back and we'll look at chapter 4 and talk about rest. But just think about this for a moment. Think about the fact that a whole generation of God's people, God's covenant community, a whole generation missed out on the promised land. Why? Because as verse 10 says, their hearts were always going astray. Whole generation fell in the desert. That's pretty intense. So it behooves us to ask ourselves, have I, have you, have we truly repented of sins and trusted in Christ? Or are you merely connected to Jesus on the outside? Are you a Christian in name only? You know, we've heard through the election season a new term, rhino. Did you hear about a rhino or Republican in name only? Well, I'm not going to talk about politics, but there's such a thing as a bino, a believer in name only. There are people such as that. Or has your heart truly been changed by the gospel? The scriptures say to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. The fact that thousands of Israelites fell in the wilderness is a warning to us, friends. A warning to me. You know, there are preachers in pulpits who have hard hearts. And so I must ask myself, is that true of me? I don't want to be like these Israelites that fell in the desert. I don't want to be denied the rest, R-E-S-T, of God. Well, perhaps I'm thinking or talking this morning not to some people who want to cling to their hard heart. I, I, I think, in fact, that I'm speaking to people who want to be spiritually strong and healthy. People who want to have a soft heart. People who want to believe God who want to trust Him and not complain and grumble when things don't go our way. I believe I'm speaking this morning to people who are looking honestly at your heart even as I speak this sermon. You see the truth about yourself that you have within you, the seeds of awful sin, that you're capable of shifting the blame. You are someone who could be guilty if God took His hands away of unbelief. You don't want that to be true of you. You want to give yourself totally to Christ. You want to follow His will no matter where it takes you. Am I right? Am I speaking to people like that this morning? I think so too. So what do we do? What is the path to a soft heart? Well, let me give you three things that lead to a tender heart instead of into a hard heart condition. First of all, to have that soft heart, to be tender toward God, in the first place, be brutally honest with yourself. Be brutally honest with yourself. Look at verse 12. The writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That word or that phrase, take care, could be take heed or beware or watch out. 
So here the writer of Hebrews is calling us to be brutally honest with ourselves. To ask ourselves hard questions. Like the questions that I've asked you this morning. Questions like, how do I respond when things don't go my way, right? Who do I blame when I don't like the situation? Things like that. Be brutally honest and ask yourself hard questions. And then when you find out that in fact you are showing signs of a hard heart, what do you do? You repent. You turn. You turn away from that hardness and turn toward God and say, God, oh, I hate that about myself. Father, forgive me. I thank you that you love me, that you're standing there not with arms crossed, looking down your nose at me, but you're looking at me with open arms, inviting me into your presence because you love me. Thank you that that's the God you are. I can come to you with the worst of myself and know that I'm safe with you. See, that's repentance. That's being honest and then running to the cross with your sin. That's the first step on the path to a soft heart. Brutal honesty and repentance. Second step, living in community with other people. Now this one might surprise you. Living in community with other people is in verse 13. This is the verse I've alluded to already today. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you, plural, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You cannot do the Christian life by yourself. It's meant to be a group exercise. And so living in community means having people around you and choosing not isolation, but fellowship with others. Now, I know that's really hard right now because of COVID-19. But we've got to figure out ways as a church and as individuals to experience community as best we can. That's why we're having snacks in the fellowship hall. You know, you, you can still keep your mask on, you can grab them and go, but at least visit for a little while because we need one another. You need someone in front of you to show you the way, someone behind you to watch your back, and someone beside you to share your burdens. Living in community is a part of the path toward a tender heart. And then third and finally, believing the gospel. Being brutally honest, repenting of sin, living in community and fellowship with other people, and believing the gospel. That's the path to a tender heart. Look at verse 1. I saved this one to the end, but this in many ways is the most important verse in the whole chapter. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That word um, consider, it means to fix your thoughts on or to thoughtfully look or look closely or perceive. Jesus, it says in verse 2, was faithful to him who appointed him. A hard heart doesn't want to look and consider Jesus. A hard heart wants to just look at self at what's best for me. But the writer is saying, if you want to have a soft heart, look intently at Jesus. 
He was faithful over God's house. That's you and me. How was he faithful? He went to the what? Cross. He took our sins to the cross and died the penalty that we deserved. He lived the perfect life that we are supposed to live by the law of God and don't. And he died the death that we deserve to die so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus did that for us. Consider him. Look upon him. Think about him through the day. Gaze intently upon him as you read the Bible. Those are the steps toward a soft heart. Be honest with yourself and your sin. Fellowship with others. And always, always, always preach the gospel to yourself. So today, if you hear his voice, I hope you have. Don't harden your heart. Find some friends who love Jesus and who will encourage you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. When times of testing come, trust in God. Believe in His love. Don't reject His word. Consider Jesus. Don't let go of Him. He will never let go of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so tempting to be like the people of Israel who grumbled and complained, who rejected your promises, who failed to be faithful. Lord, I see that same, same tendency in myself. Um, God, I see the possibility. If I don't take heed and watch and be honest and be with other people, if I, if I stop looking at Jesus and considering Jesus, my heart can, and in fact, at times it has grown cold and hard. So Lord, I bring that to you. I bring my friends here at Grace Church to you. We pray that we will be people with soft, tender hearts that repent at the first sign of sin and run to the cross thanking you that you love us and are faithful and will always forgive us because of Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.